0: doing? Good. I love the energy. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Gabe. I'm so grateful that you're here. If you want to grab your Bibles, go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Matthew 8. Uh, we'll finish out chapter 8 this morning and then go into chapter 9. And we're uh, done with, I don't know, a third of the book of Matthew. So we'll, we'll be in here for a while. Uh, but as you're flipping, just a few quick things. I know Xander said it earlier, but man, I just want to thank everybody for being a part of uh, the Truck or Treat Chili Chow Down the other night. It was incredible. Um, we, there were some fantastic chilies, some fantastic trunks, uh, and just grateful to hang out with you as a church family, but also all the people that came to, to hang out. It was an incredible night, so thanks to everyone that helped pull that night off. Uh, it was awesome. Uh, also, there was something that happened there. The pastor appreciation time uh, where there was some, I guess, toasts given. I don't really know what they were. Toasts and gifts. I mean, we just felt so blessed. Our family did uh, that night. So thank you again for that. Uh, it was such an encouraging night every way around. It's a joy to be your pastor. I love being here and excited what God has for us in the future. Um, that being said, I'm going to come off uh, from church stuff real quick um, to to have a special time of prayer. So I'm on the external elder board uh, for a new church plant that launches today. Um, So Willio Church in Roswell, Georgia, is pastored by a good friend of mine and Xander's named Tyler Joyner. Uh, Him and his wife Natalie are being sent out by Hope Church to plant a church uh, in Roswell, and they're really... um, they were given a building. It's just an incredible story that that we could share at some point. But uh, we we love church planting. Obviously, Redeemer was a church plant. I planted a church in Nolandaga. Church planting is just near and dear to our hearts. And also, statistically, it's the most one of the most evangelical, if not the most evangelical, thing that we can do uh, to win people to Jesus is by planting new churches. So I think there's a picture of them that we can put up there. Uh, There they are, Uh, just so exciting, Uh, just had their baby like a month or two ago, so what a great way to like, hey, let's settle down into a marriage by planting a church. Uh, But they're an incredible couple, so I want to pray for them. Their service started at 10 o'clock this morning, Uh, so right now Tyler is probably up preaching the good news of the gospel uh, to who knows how many people showed up for their lunch Sunday. So if we can, let's pray for them, and then we'll dive into the text. Sound good? Let's do it. Uh, Father, we're so grateful uh, for what's happening right now in Roswell. Uh, We know that there are so many people in that area that just don't know the gospel. They've been um, consumed by making more more money and materialism and all the things, Father, but they've missed out on the most important thing, which is you. And so we thank you for Tyler and Natalie's obedience to... Uh, to go to Roswell, to take over this existing church building, to breathe new life in it, and to share the gospel everywhere they go. So we pray for them, uh, for all the logistics that have had to happen this morning, Uh, but most importantly, God, we pray for Tyler right now as he's boldly proclaiming the good news of the gospel to those in that room, Uh, that you would move, that you would work, that they would see salvations, uh, they would see people committing to their church for the goodness of that area and the greatness of your gospel. Uh, So thank you so much for that family and what they mean to us. Uh, and God, we just pray a blessing over them. It's your name we pray, amen. Thank you guys for that. I know that was not really church related, but um, as I serve as an external elder for them, it's just been a very exciting. I'm grateful to be here with you. Don't get me wrong, but I would love to have been there with them too and watch all that God is doing. But uh, so two weeks ago, I shared that I was on. Uh, I went on a New England study tour uh, to go study church revitalization, the Great Awakening, all that happened really in the late 1600s, early 1700s as the Pilgrims were coming over uh, Plymouth Rock, which I told you was just so underwhelming. Uh, but through that whole, I've kind of developed a little bit of a, uh, can I say a man crush? A little bit of a bromance on a guy. Is that okay to say here? Uh, I mean, I, I've heard the way y'all talk about Setz and Bennett, all right? Y'all all have bromances. Uh, so this guy is a guy named George Whitfield. And so George Whitfield is this phenomenal preacher that traveled horseback. He went back and forth between uh, the states, the colonies, and England 13 different times. Now, just remember, that's not like Carnival Cruise Line. Enjoying his life, sitting up on the upper deck, uh, drinking a beverage, and just relaxing, right? Like that is incredibly taxing for George Whitfield to go back and forth. But everywhere he would go when he would preach, um, hundreds upon thousands of people would come out to hear the gospel proclaimed. And so you read throughout the history of different accounts of people going to hear George Whitfield, and this refrain keeps coming up Who is this man? Who is this man? We've, we've got to go listen to this man. He actually, his left eye was a little uh, cross eyed which back in that day was, like, mystical. They thought that there was some, like, uh, special divine thing in George Whitfield because he was cross-eyed, and uh, I was cross-eyed as a kid. I wish I would have known that because then I would have just left it and, like, I'm I'm mysterious and divine because I have a cross-eyed. No, I just had to wear a patch for three years, and uh, still when I get tired, it goes cross-eyed. But anyways, so as George George Whitfield was preaching, all these people would come out and say, who is this man? There's numerous times where he preached in Boston to 20,000 people. Now just let this sink in for your mind. Uh, No amplifications, no power, no nothing. 20,000 people came to hear George Whitfield preach in a town that Boston at the time was only 17,000 people. So you had not only all of Boston, but people from surrounding areas come to listen, asking who is this man? Uh, ben Franklin, who we all know from history, uh, once counted out and did this all mathematical studies to see how many people George Whitfield preached to at once. Uh, and the calculations that he calculated, up to 30,000 people at one time could hear George Whitfield preach. I mean, the, the amount of air in his lungs to preach to that many people in an open crowd was incredible, which actually led to his death as his lungs literally uh, collapsed on him in his 50s. But all this mystic around this guy, George Whitfield, because people want to know who is this man that can demand such a crowd? Who is this man that rolls into town and as he preaches, as he speaks, I mean, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people were saved. Who is this man? And in the same way, we can look back in Scripture because they're going to be asking the same question of Jesus this morning. Is, is Who is this guy? I mean, we're very early on into the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we see Jesus' ministry progressing, we see more and more miracles, more and more things spoken out of his mouth that people were just perplexed. And the question that keeps asking, who is this Man, And for all of us, if we've grown into be either a disciple of Jesus or we're still kind of on the periphery asking some good questions, we all had to have that moment in our life where we ask this question, who, who is Jesus actually? Do I actually believe who he is? Do, I, do I, Am I going to give everything to him to follow? Because honestly, the, the waters are murky when you start to follow Christ. We, we don't fully see it at all, but it all comes down to this one question of who is this man Jesus, And so that's the question as we're reading the text this morning. Have that in the back of your mind. Who do the people around Jesus in this story say that he is and how are they revealing that through their actions? So Matthew chapter 8, we're going to read 28 through 34. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and stand with me. And we're going to dive in. Matthew 8, 28 through 34. And when he came to the other side of the Geredines, two possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before that time? Now, a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the herd of pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you illuminate this scripture? Would you open up our minds as we study about your son, the character, the nature, what he's capable of? Would we be able to clearly uh, answer this question this morning? Who is Jesus? God, speak to us today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Now, as we're walking through the book of Matthew, Jesus preached the the Sermon on the Mount. He's gone out. He's done all these kind of miracles. And then he has this really hard conversation that Xander preached a couple weeks ago uh, with a couple people that wanted to follow after him. But he said, listen, if you're going to come after me, you've got to come after me fully. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. You gotta let the dead bury the dead. You gotta know what you're getting into. True followers of Jesus, leave everything behind and come follow after me. And then from that point, he gets in a boat. He goes across the Sea of Galilee, which we studied last week. And while he's sleeping, I love this, he's just chilling out in the boat, sleeping, relaxing, not a care in the world. Uh, The storm pops up. And the men in the boat are losing their minds. Rightfully so, right? Like some of these men are fishermen. They know that the boat cannot handle the storm that they're going into. And so they go ask Jesus, do you not even care about us? Like we're about to die. Do you not even care. So Jesus gets up and he rebukes the wind, rebukes the storm, that everything calms down and they just roll right into port. And this is where we pick up today uh, where we're walking into this scene, which as we read is, is a pretty scary and bleak scene, right? Like, like this isn't just high five, let's walk in. Jesus is strolling into town. As soon as he comes into this, he's met by these two demon-possessed men that the parallel stories in Mark and Luke say they can't contain him. I mean, they strapped them down. They try to do everything to let them not harm himself and not harm others, and nothing works. This is like a scene that they've never seen before. But what Matthew is clear, what he's trying to articulate in this passage is simply this, that Jesus not only has authority over all sickness, he not only has authority over all diseases, and not only has authority over the weather, But now Jesus proves that he has ultimate authority over every evil and demonic force there is. Uh, Over every evil and demonic force there is. And so we have to understand, and and we'll see some of this in Scripture here in a second, but but the book of Ephesians talks about that, that we don't battle against flesh and blood right? like We don't just fight to fight, but what's actually happened here is there's this constant battle between the evil that's trying to destroy the rule and reign of God the Father and God's rule and reign. And what we're going to see is it's not a very fair fight. Like We think that, that there's a fair fight that's happening, but, but it's really not, that, that Jesus has full authority over all the evil forces at play. Because here's what I want us to see this morning. It's simply this. Christ is victorious always. That Christ is victorious always. If the seas obey Him and if the demons obey Him, then so should we. That Christ is victorious always. Now, now there's a quote that I heard a couple of years ago from a, a guy that's it's kind of controversial, but I really appreciate the sentiment here. Is that he says that he did not want to worship a God that he thought he could beat up right? And you start to kind of tease that apart. It's like, but I kind of understand what you're saying. I mean, a lot of times in the churches we grew up in, we saw the stained glass, and, and Jesus had the feathered out hair, and he wasn't very masculine looking, and he looked like he had uh, blush and like rouge. Is that right, girls? Is that a thing? I love how the guys are answering for me. Yeah, like it just looked like he had makeup on, very effeminate kind of Jesus, And so we see here that that Jesus is not that, that he is always victorious, that nothing can stand against him, which should drive us into a deeper level of worship. But to truly understand Christ's victory, we have to ask this question, who is this man? And so the first thing that I want us to see is out of verse 28, point number one, who is this man that goes out of his way to seek the lost? That, That Jesus is a man that goes out of his way to seek The loss. He's always victorious and he's always going to seek and save that which was lost. Look back with me at verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gerardines, two demon-possessed men uh, met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now there's a detail in here that we have to stop and really study uh, because it said when he came to the other side. And we, we see that, okay, he came to the other side. I'm focusing more on the demon that's now pressed himself in between the city and Jesus. But, but what are you talking about he came to the other side? Well, if you look back with me at verse 18, we says this. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. So this was not happenstance. They didn't get on the boat and then just happenstance into this port. It was Jesus' desire and Jesus' plan to get on the boat to go exactly to the Gerardines for a specific purpose. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't accidental. He purposely went to the other side. But there's a lot of clues that we have to see why in the world would Jesus go here. First, we see that there are a bunch of pigs. Now, that means probably nothing to us, but you have to think Jesus was Jewish. And this book was written, Matthew specifically was written to Jewish people convincing them that Jesus actually is the Messiah they've been waiting for. So Jesus as a Jewish man that could not be around pigs because based on the biblical law, pigs were ceremonially unclean, they couldn't be around them. Jesus purposely hops on a boat, goes across the Sea of Galilee through a near-death experience just to get to the Gentile people that he's not supposed to be with. So Jesus, in this story, is breaking all the social norms to go pursue a people that he should not be around. The Pharisees, the other Jewish religious leaders, would say, they're not worth your time. They are done. They are destined for hell. Leave them alone, Jesus, and come spend time with the chosen people, the Jewish race. So Jesus purposely hops on a boat, goes over to the non-Jewish territory to share with them the good news of the gospel Second, not only did Jesus know he was going into a Gentile territory, but he must have known that he was going to face two men that were full of demons. I mean, just imagine them getting on the dock, right? And so they're walking up onto the dock, they're walking into the land, and you know that there's people that were around this dock going, hey man, you see, you see those tombs up there? You're going to want to get your boys out of here. Like this man, these men are possessed and have been possessed for quite some time, and they will kill you. I don't know who you are, but, but you better go. You know that they were warned. Even more than that, I mean, just imagine the, the reputation of these men around this area. Jesus knew exactly what he was walking into. He knew that he was going to a space that was going to be dangerous. He was going to a space that he might not have been wanted, but he was going for a purpose. Now, just think about, for, for me, and maybe y'all can judge me for this all you want to, when I, anytime I take my kids to downtown, I feel like we're constantly jumping sidewalk to sidewalk, right? Because there's like that guy over there that I don't know what he's doing, so we're going to run over here. And then, oh, man, like that dude's totally relieving himself. We're going to walk over. I mean, it's constantly back and forth in downtown Atlanta trying to avoid all the people that we would say are unclean. We, we want nothing to do with them. They think they're going to harm us. They think, we think that they're dangerous. And Jesus goes, no, forget all that. We're going right to them. That is the exact people that Jesus wants to deal with. And we see this throughout the entirety of his ministry. It's not just this example, but all of his ministry, Jesus is constantly going to the people that would get him in trouble. Probably one of the most famous examples is Zacchaeus, right? What was Zacchaeus? A what? We little man, I love it. So yeah, Zacchaeus was a little man. He had to climb up into the tree. I mean, just everything about Zacchaeus just screamed the Napoleon complex, right? Like he was always trying to overcompensate about who he was and what he could do. And, and so probably some of that led him to be a tax collector. We had massive Roman soldiers. Any Anytime I think about Zacchaeus, I think about like a little like little guy with these huge Roman soldiers behind him, just bossing people around. The moment those Roman soldiers leave, it's over. Right, like all these Jewish guys are saying, hey, let me catch you without those soldiers. We'll throw hands real quick, right? But he was always walking around with these Roman soldiers, doing all this tax collecting. But as Jesus is walking through, a little man climbs up into a tree so that he can see Jesus coming by. And Jesus, in this moment, stops. Now, here's a man that was hated by almost everyone around him. He was selling out, just like Matthew, we'll see in chapter 9, selling out all of those friends, all of his family, just to make a buck. But Jesus stops and looks up and says, let's go. Zacchaeus, I'm I'm going to your house. We're going to eat dinner together. And through this conversation, Zacchaeus gets rid of everything. He writes every wrong that he's ever done. So as Jesus is getting grilled about why in the world would you hang out with Zacchaeus, Jesus drops this gem in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. So Jesus is very clear. I, I'm not here for the well. Like, like I'm not going to, my ministry here is not going to consist of me going around to the people that don't think they need me. My ministry here is not going to be easy. I'm going to constantly be going out to the people on the outcasted society that have no other hope apart from me. That is what I'm here to do. Jesus said, I'm, I'm not here to seek the perfect. The, the well don't need a physician, Jesus was to say, but the sick do, and that is why I'm here. So flip over with me to Ephesians, because I need us all to see that this is such good news for us. That if Jesus' ministry comprised of purposely getting on the boat, going across the Sea of Galilee for these men, what does this mean for us? because if it wasn't for Jesus stepping out of heaven to walk this planet and die the death that we deserved we would have no hope and this and here we see is the totality of the gospel because Ephesians 2 would put it this way Ephesians 2 we're going to pick it up in verse 1 and you were dead in the trespasses and sins and once which you once walked following the course of the world Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, we, we are constantly putting ourselves in the wrong position when we enter ourselves into Scripture. Because, please hear me, you're not Jesus in this story. Scripture would tell us that we are that demon-possessed man, that we were by nature children of wrath. Ephesians 2.1, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. Can a dead man choose life? No. What can a dead man do? Do nothing other than be dead. In the same way, could this man that was demon-possessed choose to be unpossessed? No, don't you think he would have if he could? So in the same way, there's a parallel happening that Jesus got on the boat, purposely went across the Sea of Galilee just for these demon-possessed men. Paul is telling us, Ephesians, that Jesus stepped out of heaven, walked perfectly on this earth because we were all dead in our sins and trespasses and could do nothing about it. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It was the grace of Christ that hopped on that boat and went across the Sea of Galilee. It was the grace of Christ that stepped out of heaven and lived the perfect life for us. It is that grace that we have been saved, not by any effort because a dead man cannot choose life. And this is what we see Jesus purposely going out of his way into enemy territory, into somewhere that was dangerous for him to be in, doing ministry with a man that could not contain himself, and he purposely walked there for the one point, to seek and save that which was lost. Who is this man that would go out of his way to pour his grace upon us? But we've got to look at how the demons respond to this. Because the second point we see out of this scripture is, who is this man that has demons pleading for mercy? So Jesus shows up on the scene, and and there's no conflict here. Instantly, the demons start pleading for mercy. Look with me back at Matthew 8, verse 29. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So, so Mark 5 and Luke 9 have similar parallels of this story. Let me read Mark's account of this. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wretched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Sounds like a pretty bad dude. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And he saw Jesus from afar. He ran and fell down before him. Okay, just, just have this moment. No one could do anything with this man. And the moment that this man sees Jesus, he runs and bows down before him. In verse 7 of Mark chapter 5, and crying out with a loud voice, he says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Holy smokes what is happening here. This man that's been running crazy in this town for we don't know how long, but everyone was scared. And I love the details that Mark gives that they had chains, they had ropes, they had shackles, they had all these things. Nothing could hold him down. He was out of control because of the demons that were inside of him. The moment he sees Jesus, he doesn't try to bow up. He doesn't try to uh, defeat him. He runs and he falls at his feet. First, he calls him the son of God. Second, he begs for mercy, asking Jesus not to torment him before it's time. And third, he bargains with Jesus to send them into the pigs instead of destroying them. This is the demon's response to Jesus as he shows up in the Gadarenes. So let's look at each of these real briefly. First, he calls him the Son of God or the Son of the Most High God. It should jump off the page to us. That when the demons see Jesus, they know exactly who he is. They bow down before him and they give him the most high title of being the son of God. There's no trash talking. There's no back and forth. They instantly fall down. And the gospel or the book of James would tell us this. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And here's what we're seeing right here in real time. The demons come before Jesus and shudder. They fall at his feet. The respect and recognition these, these demons give to Jesus only draw one the illustration for me is that we as Christians do not worship Jesus as much as the demons do. That the demons have more respect and more admiration, and more love, and more fear, and more of everything of King Jesus than we do. Because they instantly fall before him. We have such a lazy and weak respect for God and who he is. We give him lip service constantly. Yes, I love Jesus as long as it doesn't interrupt with my preferences or what I want to do. I will serve him as long as it's convenient for me. I will call him Lord, but when we think about the idea of Lord, it means we're submitting everything to him, so we don't actually mean Lord, it's just lip service. Because my preferences are going to trump Jesus's always. And we might not ever admit that, but if we just looked at our lives, does our lives look more like the demons that instantly see him and fall before him, Or more like those just giving lip service that, yeah, I will worship Jesus when it's convenient for me or when I need something. These demons recognize that he is the son of God. And not only do they recognize it, but second, he begs for mercy, asking Jesus not to torment him before it's time. So so these demons knew what was happening. They knew what was going on. They knew that Revelation 20 is true, that there will come a day where God will bind Satan and and demons forever and always. Revelation 20.10 puts it this way. Then the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. These demons knew what was coming for them. And so in this moment, they're pleading, it's not time, Jesus. Would you have mercy on me? Have you come to torment us before the time? Would you have mercy? Now, again, just consider, if you're one of these disciples watching all of this unfold, the refrain that's going to be going through your mind is, oh, my gosh, who is this guy? That this demon-possessed man that no one can control Is now worshiping Jesus and pleading with him to show mercy and not destroy them before it's time. And it really should, at least for us, snap us into this idea of what hell really is. If the demons are pleading, don't send us there before it's time, then we should not haphazardly view hell for what it isn't. Hell is a real place and it is eternal and it is awful. And once you're in it, you are in it. But Jesus goes out of his way to assure that this man would not be in it. And third, he bargains with Jesus to send him into the pigs instead of destroying them. Now, at some point, this is quite comical, right? I mean, you could just imagine all this thing happening. This demon-possessed man starts looking around like, I don't want to go to the place of eternal torment. Now, where can I go? Uh, Pigs. Right? It's, like, it's like, what is the first thing I see? Just put me in there. Do not destroy me. But what happens? All 2,000 of these pigs go straight off the cliff and drown. And here's where we just have to call a spade a spade. We far too often neglect and don't remember that Satan is here to destroy us. And his demons are here to get rid of us. John 10 says that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy that's what he does. But so often we buddy up, we play games, we don't really take sin serious, we don't really consider the ramifications of our sin, but what devil is trying to do is get a stronghold in our life, not to make our lives better, but to destroy us. And what we see happening in this story is exactly what the devil that prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour us wants to do. He wants to throw us over the cliff to destroy us. We see this happening. In our modern day, we give so little credit to the demonic forces that are actually at play. But if we can actually zoom out and understand, we see just how clear this is happening over and over. And so we see these demons fall right before King Jesus and worship him. Do we cower down at the presence of Jesus like the demons do? Do we have the same respect for King Jesus that the demons do? But but here's what I really want us to look at. Look with me at verse 32. And he said to them, go. All right, so the demons pleading, begging for mercy, don't destroy us before the time is here. So Jesus looks up and says, go. Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Now, again, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples watching all of this take place. The question they must be asking is Who is this man that can cast out demons and calm the oceans with a word? That's point number three. Who is this man that just the night before spoke, and the waves and the sea listened? And then he gets over here, and all he has to do is say the word go, and the demons are expounded from this man. This this community has tried over and over and over again to fix this man, and they could not. And Jesus says, one word and the problem is solved. This is the victory. Jesus is not struggling here. He's in full control. And in one instant, with one word says, go, and it happens. Again, in the parallel passages, Mark and Luke use this word that I really want us to hone in on. That he gave them permission, Mark 5.13 says. That Jesus gave the demons permission. In Luke 8, now a large herd was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter into these. So he gave them permission. So Jesus said, go, and gave them permission. Permission that they bow down at the feet of Jesus and cannot do anything apart from the permission granted by King Jesus. At a word, the demons do exactly what Jesus says to do. And again, this should not be any surprise to us. Go all the way back. I I don't know how much of a Bible flipper you are, but this is a pretty easy one. You ready? Leave your fingers and mark and go to Genesis 1. Everyone should be able to find Genesis 1. When we get to Genesis 1, there's a a thing that begins that we see carried out through the entirety of Scripture. And Jesus as the Son of God, fully man, fully flesh, co-eternal with the Father. It should be no surprise to us that we see the same thing happening. Because in Genesis 1, I'm going to kind of fly through a little bit of it. Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters, and it was so. Verse nine, and God said, let the waters appear under the heavens and be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and the fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. We're catching this refrain. Verse 14, and God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth And it was so. Verse 20, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the heavens and expanses of the heavens. Verse 24, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creature according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts upon the earth according to the kinds. And it was so. So, Everything, we talked about this this morning in our uh, applied theology class in our course seminars. Ex nihilo, created out of nothing. God needed no help to create this planet. All he needed was one thing, his voice. He speaks, it happened, and it was so. So then it should not surprise us then in this story that Jesus says, go, and they went. And we have to understand, I mean, the the severity of this sentence is massive. The waves listen to Jesus when he speaks. The ocean listens to Jesus as it speaks. The storms listen to Jesus as it speaks. The, The man listens to Jesus as he speaks. The only one that does not obey Jesus at his word is us. It's us. And we're playing games, and we're placating, and we're doing what we want to do. Is, as Scripture would tell us, we're doing right what is in our own eyes. But Proverbs would say, even that leads to death. That our flesh is too easily followed, as Ephesians 2 would say, the principality is what's living in the spiritual realm of our lives. And so we have to just stop and ask the question. If Jesus gives permission, if he does everything, if he speaks and it happens... And we are the only ones that are not obedient to what God calls us to do. What does that mean for us? But as I said earlier, and this should be hopefully an encouragement to some of our souls this morning, Luke and Mark's gospel both use the word permission. That God gave them permission. See, nothing happens outside of God's perfect plan nothing happens, there's nothing that they can do. There's never a moment where God's sitting on his throne and goes, oh no, I did not see that coming. And we see this clearly, Job 1, 11 through 12. As as Job is living a faithful, upright life, Satan comes to God and says, I bet I can get this guy to sin. I bet I can get this guy to curse you and die. But Job 11 says, but stretch out your hand and judge all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. You see, everything that happens in our life, God has given permission to. And we can trust that it's for the good of those who love them. That that nothing happens. Uh, John Piper says that, that God is not an ambulance driver that drives up on the scene, or are we tracking with that? That everything happens out of permission. God gives permission for all of this. Now, we don't have the mind to understand what he's up to. But the deepest days, the, the worst days, the hardest seasons of our life, we can have comfort in the fact that God has not left us, that this was not accidental, that he has a plan and a purpose behind all of this, and it's for our good and for his glory. He gave them permission. Nothing that happens outside the will of God. So here's the question. Who is this man? As we keep wrestling with who is this man, the answer is quite clear. He's fully and completely the son of God. The disciples were right. Excuse me, the the demon-possessed men were right. When they fell at his feet and said, the son of God most high, they were 100,000% correct. And in this moment, we see pretty clearly that, that Jesus is already fulfilling the prophecies that were told of old. Isaiah sixty-one-one puts it this way, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and open up the prison to those who were bound. So Isaiah is saying, when the Messiah comes, here's how we can recognize him. Here's some things that he's going to do that we're going to see. He's going to bring good news to the poor. He's literally got on a boat and gone to a people that the Jewish race has forgotten about. He's bringing good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive. This man was in Chains. He was held captive not only by this community, but by the demons residing inside of them and to open uh, the prison to those who were bound. What we see Jesus doing here is a fulfillment of the prophecy that they knew Jesus was coming to fulfill. So the Jewish readers that were reading this, in their minds, they knew the book of Isaiah. They knew the Old Testament prophets. And in this moment, they're wrestling with, oh my gosh, this actually might be Jesus, the Son of God. Because Isaiah said, when he comes, here's how we can recognize him, and here's what he's done. He's came to this demon-possessed man, this man held captive by sin, and he set the captive free. But here's here's the reality for all of us. Neutrality to the person and work of Jesus is not permitted. Jesus is either the son of God or he's not. There's no middle ground. And as American cultural Christianity, we want to live in this middle ground. We want to call him Lord, but actually don't act like it. And so we want to live in this middle ground. But if we say he's the son of God, he's the Lord most high, there's no neutrality to that. I think C.S. Lewis put it perfectly when he called it the liar, lunatic, or Lord trichotomy. Have you all heard this? So, so C.S. Lewis, as he's talking about the C.S. Lewis wrote The Line which in the wardrobe, mere Christianity, screw tape letters, uh, just a prolific author of, of things that just encourage our flesh. Um, he wrote A Grief Observed. I would highly recommend that if you're going through a season of grief. A Grief Observed is another great book to read. But anyways, when he's talking about the person and work of Jesus, he said we have to ask these questions. As we read and study about Jesus, Jesus is either a liar, Jesus is either a lunatic. Or Jesus is actually Lord. He actually is who the demons says he is. And for Jesus to be a liar, that's a pretty crafty thing to do. When you you think about the life and ministry of Jesus, when you had his brother that was a follower of him, that even after Jesus dies, they took James up to the pinnacle of the temple and pushed him off because he would not recant. So even if Jesus was lying and was paying all these people off, after the death of Jesus, don't you think James would have said, hey man, I lived with Jesus, he's not God, bro. Let me tell you some stories about Jesus. I mean, don't you think that James would have been bargaining with these men that were about to kill him for being a disciple of Jesus. So if he was a liar, he would have to be a really, really good one to convince everyone around them that he actually was. Or option two, Lewis would say Jesus is just a lunatic. I mean, he was just off his rocker. And again, we just have to beg the question, then, then why would he have the many followers that he had? Then why would his life look like what it looked like? Why would he actually be murdered for no reason if he was just a lunatic? But don't you think if they're laying him, after they've been beating him for hours, they lay him onto the cross, get ready to nail the nails into his hands, into his wrists for him to just go, I was just kidding. I'm out. I'm out. out. I was joking. I'm a liar. I'm a lunatic. I'm crazy. I don't actually think I'm the son of God. So he didn't do that. So if he's not a liar, and if he's not a lunatic, then he actually has to be who he says he is. That he has to be the Lord. And if he's actually the Lord, then what is our response to that? How, how then do we respond if Jesus was there in the beginning? Matthew would say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what the Scriptures would say, that Jesus was with him in the beginning. This triune, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have always been together together. So if Jesus really is who he says he is, if he's actually the Lord of lords, then what is our proper response? If he's actually victorious, because again, even remember Genesis 3.15, as God is speaking the curses of men for falling for the sin, entering into the world, Genesis 3.15 puts it this way, that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We see this first messianic prophecy that when Jesus comes, the Satan might bruise his heel, but God, through Christ, is going to crush his head. He is victorious. So then what is our response? What was the demon's response? So in this story, there's three different responses that we see take place. The first is the herdsman. I mean, just imagine for yourself. You don't own these pigs. You're watching these 2,000 pigs. You've probably not enjoyed the job that you've been given, but, man, you're trying to do it faithfully. You're watching all of this happen, all this story take place. Jesus casts out the demons, and all your pigs run into the ocean. And you go, oh, no, I just got fired. <laughs> like, how am I going to explain this to my boss? Hey, man, I was watching the pigs, and then cut to the pigs drown. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to explain the middle part. But Scripture would say in verse 33 that the herdsmen fled, and going into the city they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. So we see almost a similar story in the birth of Jesus uh, when the shepherds are watching, and they go running telling everybody what they've just seen. But with the shepherds in, with the herdsmen, we would call them evangelists. They tell everyone, but I don't know that we can call them disciples because there's no proof that they've actually left everything behind to come follow Jesus. See, in the same way, there's a bunch of hype men around the church that get super excited about a season of ministry or a thing that's take place, and they're part of the church, they're following Jesus hard, and then quickly they fall away because they never actually submitted to his lordship. They just got excited about the hype around this event or this man. And so maybe that's some of us in this room. We we get more excited about what Jesus is instead of the discipline of dying to ourselves daily and following after him. We see this a lot. I was in youth ministry for three four years. We see this a lot when you have the, the D-NOW in the spring, and then you have the summer camp in the summer, and then you have fall retreat, and then you have winter jam, and then you come back and D-NOW, and then summer retreat, and then fall retreat. and So you're never actually falling in love with Jesus. You're just going to these events that hype you up and get you excited. But once you leave these events, i.e. college, 84% of college students fall away from their faith. Why? Because they were just like these hype men. They never actually gave their life to Jesus. They just loved going to these events that made them feel good, but had no real interest of submitting their entire life to the lordship of King Jesus. And in the same way, there are some of us in this room right now doing the same thing. The second people we see is uh, the townspeople. Another word I would give for them is the naysayers. Matthew 8:34. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. I mean, what a response for them. That this man that they've seen be trialed, I mean, just tormented night and day by these demons. And when they come out to meet Jesus, this just liberated this man, set him free. They are more concerned about their pigs than they were about the miracle that Jesus just presented. Matthew Henry puts it this way, too many prefer their pigs above their savior and so come short of Christ and salvation through him. So who do you care more about, people or pigs? Are we so concerned with our own livelihood that we fail to serve those around us that are in difficult and impossible circumstances? Or or maybe another way to say it, in our Bible Belt South, that we are so concerned with our preferences, that the preferences that we want to see within a church are our pigs, and we hold entire churches hostage over our preferences while there's all these tens of thousands of people destined for hell, but we're going to sit here and argue about pigs and forget about those that are going to hell and do absolutely nothing about it. And I praise God that Redeemer is not one of those. And we've all seen them. We might have grown up with them, the church that fights about the carpet. And do we serve fried chicken and pasta salad? Well, nobody likes pasta salad. or collard greens. Well, no one's going to make collard greens. So all the while we're arguing over all these things and tens of thousands of people are dying and going to hell, but we're still arguing about our pigs. And we see this happening right before our eyes. In 2019, y'all check this. In 2019, 4,500 churches closed. 4,500 churches closed. The statistics have not came out for post-COVID, but I would argue it's probably way more than that. 4,500 churches. And praise God for guys like Tyler Joyner and Willio that have accepted this property and planting a new life into it. But statistically, we're not starting enough new churches to keep up with the decline. And why is that? We're arguing more about the pigs and the life change in front of us. And we're worrying more about our preferences and what we would rather have instead of welcoming people in to the family of God and preaching the good news of the gospel to them. We're so concerned with our pigs. And there's people dying and going to hell because of it. But the last person we see, we see the herdsmen, we see the townspeople. But let us look lastly at the captive that was set free. I, I love Luke's account of this, Luke eight thirty-eight. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Mark 5 is a pretty parallel passage and here's what it says. Mark 5, 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how, you ha- how, excuse me, how he has seen mercy on you. And he went away and proclaimed to all what Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the good news of the gospel. So I don't want us to be a church full of evangelists. They get super excited about events or things or, or things that happen and, and miss out on what's happening. And I don't want us to be a church that's full of those arguing about the pigs and our preferences and what we'd rather do. I want us to be a church full of captives that have been set free. That Satan has gripped us, that we've been living in this total depravity and the, the power, the prince of the air that's held us down. And Jesus got on the boat and he went across the Sea of Galilee on purpose, for purpose, to set us free. And we don't sit there and nasal gaze after Jesus has saved us, but we plead with him, let us go with you. And he says, no, son, you still have a purpose here. And how much of us, especially with all this going on in the world, are saying, Jesus, come get us, come rescue us, take us home. And he's going, no, son, no, daughter, there's a purpose for you on earth. Go tell everyone what I've done for you. That I've set you free by the grace of God. That is what Jesus has done for the and That I want us to be a f- church full of them. That we know fully that we could have never set ourselves free. That Jesus stepped out of heaven for us. And he didn't just get on a boat and go across the sea, but he went to the cross. He was beaten for us. He died. Not just like kind of died. He died, died, was buried and raised on the third day so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Christ has done for us. So what is our response then? We fall on our face and we call him Lord. And we say whatever you want for me, I'm in it. God, wherever you want to send me, whatever you want me to do, I'm in because you're my Lord. I know my life before you redeemed me and rescued me and I don't want to go back there. I want to please you, I want to follow you. I want a new life that you've given me. God, what would you have for me today? I was held captive, I was in chains, but you have set me free. That is the good news of the gospel that we see in this passage. And Jesus didn't beg or plead or barter, he said, go. And it happened. So this morning, as we conclude, which one of us are we in this story? Are we the herdsman that just gets excited, that buys into the hype, but have not yet submitted to the life that Jesus can offer. I would say there's salvation for you this morning. Recognizing that as the first step in following Jesus with your whole life. So I would say come, repent, and follow him. If we're the naysayers, that we're so focused on the pigs that we're missing out on what God is trying to do through Christ, I would say let us repent from that. Yes, there's always gonna be preferences that we're not gonna get. Yes, there's always going to be things that we would like to do differently. Yes, you're always going to be disappointed in decisions and things that happen. Yes, but if we lose the forest for the trees, that we're lovingly telling the world, I don't care about you. That is not what the gospel has said, that we cannot focus on the pigs. I just want to, again, commend us. What happened Wednesday night was the first real big shot in that that I've seen in a while. That we were so loving and so welcoming and so excited for the people. Could we have done this different and that different? Sure, but did I hear any complaining from Wednesday night? Not at all, because we were not focused on the pigs, but on the captives. And that is the good news of the gospel. And I'm so proud of you all for doing that. And then lastly, there's the captors that have set us free. And this is why we worship, this is why we sing, this is why we show up, because we knew that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but Christ has made us alive with him. So if you've just kind of been around the periphery, but you've not submitted your life to King Jesus, let today be the day. If you need to repent from caring more about your preferences and the lostness around us, let us repent and follow after him. And if you've been a captive that has been set free, let us sing and worship and rejoice because Christ stepped out of heaven and came after us, and we can rejoice in that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this story and how we see ourselves in it, that in the same way that this man could not fix himself, we were the same way, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but you came after us. That you did not sit in heaven and say, "Ah, I don't want to deal with it. That you stepped out of heaven to come rescue and redeem. And with a voice, you've offered salvation for all of us. And So this morning, I'm just asking you to do what you've already done throughout all of history. Which is save those in this room. Those that know that they are lost, know that there's nothing they can do to earn their salvation that have tried everything they can to fix themselves and still cannot, God, would you save them right now in this moment? Would they, after this prayer, turn to the person next to them, would they come grab me at the front and say, I was lost, but now I've been found. I was captive and chains, but Christ has set me free this morning. I'm putting all my faith and hope in him and him alone. Let us rejoice with that. And God, would you forgive us when we focus on our preferences, on our pigs, more than we focus on the captive being set free? God, it can be so easy for us to get focused on the wrong things. Father, would you forgive us for that? And for those in the room that that we're just thinking back on our testimony, how much you held us together when our world seemed to be falling apart, how we were in chains And you came in with a voice, called us to a new life. With a word you offered forgiveness and hope. God, let us never forget that moment of salvation. Let us remember when we had no hope, no future. And you said, come. And we walked out of those chains. We walked out of that captivity. We became sons and daughters of you. And so no matter what hardships we walk through and you say there will be hardships, we can take full assurance that we'll never be held captive again like that. And that hell is not a place for us that we can trust you with our future and eternity with you in heaven. And so let us all the more worship. and Let us all the more sing the praises of you because you love us. You came down to rescue So, Father, would you speak to us even now in this moment? Would uh, you illuminate the scripture to our hearts? And would you, uh, through the Spirit, stir in us a response that you would have us to do? It's your name that we pray. Amen. Church, that you can stand with us to worship. The altar's always open. I'll be over here if you want to chat, but let us respond to the good news of the gospel.